I'm Jeff Murphy from Boston University Alumni Relations, and I'm your host for an interview series showcasing the career paths of our most interesting and accomplished alumni. Welcome to the Proud to Be You podcast. My guest today is Eric Stange, award-winning documentary filmmaker and founder of Spy Pond Productions. Eric earned a degree in journalism from the College of Communication in 1979. I talked to him about finding his tribe in the documentary filmmaking community, lessons he learned from personal and professional hardship, and the role luck has played in fulfilling his life's passion. Eric, thank you again for being here with us today. Um, I generally get started. I, I'd love to hear about sort of where you grew up um, and, and kind of, I know that you didn't go to BU as an undergrad, but uh, how, how you ended up getting to BU. So where did you grow up and, and what did that look like, your path to, to the Charles River campus? Well, I actually grew up in the first half of my childhood in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and then my father took a job here in Boston. He's an English professor, was an English professor. And so we moved to Boston when I was 14. I went to high school in Boston and then went to UMass Amherst, University of Massachusetts Amherst, and majored in English and got out and realized, of course, that an English degree doesn't go very far. I was also certified to teach high school, high school history in English. And I really always expected I'd be a history teacher. But that path did not work out. And after two or three years of working at fairly unsatisfying jobs, I started spending my lunch hours reading graduate school catalogs. <laughs> and that's what eventually led me to the BU School of Journalism. I never had actually seen myself being a journalist, but um, I knew I could write. And the more I thought about it, the, this was the post-Watergate era. Uh, the more I thought that that could be really interesting. So did you know people that went to BU or was it just something in one of those catalogs that you were casually reading through that, that drew you to, to BU? Well, I'd always I'd had friends who'd been at BU and actually my sister got a PhD at BU in American Studies. So yeah, I'm certainly aware of it, but uh, it had a good school of journalism and I did not have a great track record. I'd never worked on a high school paper or a college paper. I didn't have much to show. Uh, so somehow I impressed them, I guess, with my written essay. Um, I'm, I've always wondered, <laughs> frankly, uh, why they took me, but it worked out. So um, tell us about your BU experience. Were there, when you reflect back on your master's degree, are there classes or professors or maybe classmates that really stand out to you as being sort of crucial to the, the experience you had here? Yeah, the print journalism program at BU, I, I don't have anything to compare it to, of course, directly, but the city room class, which I think is still done largely the same way. It's a kind of a, a boiler room experience. And the teacher I had was John Klarfeld, who just died a year ago or so, unfortunately. He touched a lot of people's lives, uh, including mine. He was a great, no-nonsense, hard-boiled kind of journalist type. Uh, he had been a, a journalist for quite a while and an editor. And he would simulate the mood and the feeling and the reality of a newspaper city room as much as he possibly could. And he was tough. He really held our feet to the fire and made us learn to write quickly and accurately on deadline. All the, the skills you have to learn. So that was great. And then the other class that really changed my life in some ways was a magazine writing class 
taught by a magazine writer who did a lot for the New Yorker. He was only there for one semester. I was very lucky to get him. And I'm afraid I'm blanking on his name at the moment. Uh, he, he was there for one semester. I saw it. I signed up. I wanted, I thought magazine writing would be great. So you and knew who he was even. I, I kind of knew the name. I, yeah, I read yeah. the New Yorker. Uh, and the article I wrote for that class got accepted by the Atlantic Monthly. So that was from, you know, as far as I was concerned, it was like going from zero to 100 miles per hour. And, yeah. You know, I had seen in your bio that you'd written for yeah. the Atlantic, and here yeah. you are admiring this New Yorker writer, and then you're, you're a published author yourself. That's that's quite <laughs> I, impressive for a grad student. And it is what a program like BU can do, because when you meet people like that, he, he was a wonderful guy. And he said, he said, you know, that that article's interesting. Uh, you know, I'm going to call up my friend at the Atlantic. Maybe they'd be interested. And uh, next thing I do, actually, it's a, it, it, I have to say, it was one of the highlights of my life. I was sitting in a class. I forgot what, but it wasn't, it wasn't the magazine writing class because the magazine writing was in the fall. By now, it was spring semester. And Jim Brand, the chairman of the journalism department, came to the door of the class, pointed at me and said, Come here. <laughs> I thought, what have I done? What yeah, I how many how many out? different thoughts went through your head? Yeah, exactly. I wonder. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it turned out he'd gotten a phone call from uh, from the Atlantic, and they were interested in the piece. And I don't know why they called him. I mean, they had my number. I thought, but anyway. So, so, so cool. we might skip around on your timeline a little bit here now, but you're, you're a grad student. You've just been published in the Atlantic. Are you thinking I'm going to be a journalist? Like this is clearly what I've, I've been born to do. And so uh, you finish your master's degree and then is that just the direction you're pointed down? Is that the road that you see in front of you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I felt at that point like, okay, this is something I can do. I, I thought I would be able to become a freelance magazine writer. It didn't really work out that way. I ended up going into newspapers, but, and, and I wrote a few other magazine articles, never again for the Atlantic, unfortunately, <laughs> although I didn't actually try too many, but um, uh, tended to be different kinds of journals um, and you know, some pretty big ones. So that was good. But yeah, I, I was just so glad to be able to get a job in a real profession after my couple of years out of college doing pretty mundane and boring things. Were, so, were you on staff at a paper or were you, yeah. were you freelancing? Okay. No, on staff for a chain of weeklies. Times? No, oh, no, no, never, no, never that. Uh, first a chain of weeklies around Boston and then eventually the, the tab, which was just starting up yep. and then the Boston Herald for about five years. And I also know that you uh, ended up writing for both the Globe and the New York Times. That's why I asked about that. Was that yeah? Later? Those were freelance, freelance pieces. Okay. Yep. So let's the back in the timeline. Recently finished from your master's degree, working towards you know a, a career in journalism. Thinking back to your younger self, obviously you had a, a always had an interest in history, English writing, journalism. Uh, does does Eric at that time have any inclination that he might be going into? documentary filmmaking? No, I really okay. hadn't thought about it. And of course, BU then had their broadcast journalism program. It never occurred to me to have gone that route instead of print. I just was always thinking of myself as a writer. Uh, but I can tell you what happened. I, in, in my time at the Boston Herald, I realized I was really less and less interested in daily news and more interested in in feature stories, uh, particularly 
art stories or stories where art and commerce intersected. I liked stories that had sort of ethical and moral dimensions to them. Um, stories about plagiarism or stories, you know, things that seemed sort of deep but had some intellectual aspect. And uh, But I also ended up getting the assignment of writing about documentary films. I mean, in, in a sense, documentary films are sort of art or an artistic side of journalism. And at the Herald, nobody else really seemed that interested. So I ended up being the one who would write a lot about uh, the local documentary scene in Boston. I started to get to know these filmmakers. And they were so collaborative and so collegial and so willing to share credit. I would talk to the director and the director would say, well, yeah, I'm happy to talk to you, but you really got to talk to the editor. And then the editor would say, oh, you have to talk to the cameraman. And they were just that way. And I thought, these people are so much nicer <laughs> than, than journalists and they're having so much more fun. I, I After a while, daily journalism wasn't that much fun for me. and um, And I started to think, yeah, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could make documentary films. I I had some friends who did it. I didn't work with them. I didn't really know what was involved. But um, I was very lucky that the Herald let me work part-time for about five years while I made the transition. It wasn't an easy, it took a long time to learn enough to actually be able to make a living doing documentaries, but eventually I did. Well, it's interesting that you sort of just started talking about yourself as a storyteller, and that that helped me at least to make the connection between journal and, and filmmaking. It also sounds a little bit like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that even though you were really successful in, in just your pure writing, is it fair to say that it, once you started getting to know folks in, in the filmmaking scene that you really sort of found your tribe? Is that, uh, is that what happened? Yes, actually, that is exactly what happened. And in fact, I ended up falling in love and getting married to a, another filmmaker. And through her, of course, met a whole lot of people because she'd been involved much longer than I had. So yeah, very much I found my tribe and, and felt very much at home. And I still think that, at least in the greater Boston community, film producer, documentary film editors, producers, cameramen are just the nicest, most interesting people I've ever worked with. And uh, it's a great community. So, uh, it, you know, you, you sort of, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like it just in sort of pursuing your own interests and passions is what led you to finding your tribe. Were there other things, you know, specific decisions that you had to make along the way that sort of set you off on the path that, that would help you find your tribe? Um, were, you know, were there specific skills or lessons that you had learned that also sort of pointed you down the, the right path as, as you might see it? Well, I'll tell you, it's a pretty personal story. The, the thing that really did launch me into documentary film, I, I was already, I guess, kind of thinking about it, or I'd already decided I liked documentary filmmakers. But then, uh, sadly, my first wife died of cancer when she was 30 years old. We had only been married a short time. And that was so devastating to me that that that's when I began to realize that I really wasn't happy in it as a print journalist. It, I wasn't feeling fulfilled. And it, of course, made me feel life was too short to be unhappy. And I felt the need to do something new and different and something that might be about her or for her in some way. And so the very first film I ever made, a very simple, straightforward documentary is called The Pitch of Grief. And it's about grief and bereavement. It, it follows five people 
who are going through the experience of grieving for someone who had died recently, someone they love. And um, it was so simple, such a simple film. It's just talking heads and a few photographs. And I had a, a mentor, a guy who ran a local uh, film foundation named Fred Simon, who taught at Clark University for many years. He was the one who told me to, yeah, just do it that way. Just just let people talk. And I kept thinking, well, don't we have to go film graveyards or film a funeral or film something? And he said, why? Why? It's people's stories that matter. That, that's what is going to make this be a moving film. And he was absolutely right. And in fact, it still is in distribution. It still sells. I still get checks, not big, but occasional checks. I mean, every time we get one, we go out to dinner. And um, it's just uh, amazing to me that the simplest film I ever made in many ways has had the greatest reach. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry to hear about your first wife and thank you for sharing that with us. And and I did want to ask if there are uh, is a place or places that that our listeners would be able to see that that documentary. So are, is it where would people yeah, go? Yeah, it's for in it? distribution uh, with a company called Daedalus Films. But um, if somebody's interested, they could certainly contact me through spypondproductions.com is my website. There's a contact link and I'd be happy to send, send it. One of the things we talk a lot about is just in terms of people's career progressions um, that oftentimes those unexpected twists and turns or even mistakes along the way can often be really valuable learning experiences. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you, it sounds like you always sort of had an idea of what you cared about and what you wanted to work on. And that naturally led you to, to where you are now. Uh, but were there missteps or, or hard lessons you had to learn that you reflect on now as being particularly helpful? Um, yeah, I, I was thinking about that question and I'm not sure this is the best answer, but it, it speaks to the way that luck Luck plays a role, I think, always in people's lives, good luck and bad luck. Um, You also have to know when to seize the moment. And um, when I met the woman who's my wife now, after my first wife died, my second wife came from a filmmaking background. And when I met her, she was just about to leave for a six-month job at the BBC in London. And we'd just started going out. And I had to decide, you know, how important is this person to me? Am I going to go live in London with her with nothing to do while she goes to work every day? Or because I think we both knew that if I didn't do that, chances are the relationship wouldn't last. And so I said, oh, the hell with it. I'll just go to London. And I'd started a second film by then, but it was kind of stuck and because I didn't know what I was doing. The first one had been so easy. The second one was really hard. Um, so I decided I'll put that on the shelf. I'll go to London with this woman who I thought I was in love with or was in love with. And um, But it, it was kind of hard in London. She worked all day. I had nothing to do. I couldn't work legally. But I did meet a guy who would turn out to be incredibly important in my life, a, a BBC producer uh, who, I don't know, we just hit it off. And and that's the luck thing, you know, and he, and he, I would tell, I told him a few ideas I had, including one that I thought would be a feature film, a, a fiction film. And he said, but it was based on a true story that I knew. And, but all, all the protagonists were dead and I didn't think, it never occurred to me that it could be a documentary. And he said, of course, that could be a documentary. But I didn't know enough about how. And he then told me, helped me, you know, together we figured it out. But we realized, yeah, that could be a documentary. I would have never have done that 
if he hadn't, if I hadn't had the luck of meeting somebody more experienced, quite a bit more experienced, also very bright, and um, being open to working with him and learning from him. And together we made the film and it was on the American Experience series on PBS. I mean, that was a big jump for me. And uh, that, that was enormously important. I guess the misstep part of it was not having the imagination myself to realize that that was a great story for a documentary. It is a great story, though, about how the people in your life, and, and we talk about this in you know, uh, career perspectives, as part of your network, that those folks help you shape ideas and shape your path in ways that you might not have thought of on your own. And that it's a hugely uh, important reason to, to have a strong network of, of professionals that you, mm-hmm. you are inspired by and things like that. And I'm curious, you know, you, you, you had the fortune of, of having this person in your life being a part of your network. And as you, you mentioned that you were sort of sharing ideas with this, this person, this producer, and I'm wondering, did you see yourself as kind of, were you pitching him or was it purely just talking about ideas that you had as, as part of, again, your, your personal passions and things like that? Or did you know at the time that he was somebody could, who could maybe help you make things happen? Well, I knew he could help me, but I think it was more, I didn't know much about the business at that point. So I think it was as much just trying to get a sense of like, do these ideas make any sense as documentaries or what, what are, how, how do you even get something off the ground? I mean, I, at that point was halfway through a film that I just couldn't figure out how to finish because I didn't know enough. And um, so I, I was feeling pretty, sort of disillusioned about the whole business. And he made me realize that, no, no, you've just got to take it in steps. And here are the steps. And you, this is how you work through it. So I'm guessing also that, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, that you're relying on, that your network, your your network of connections is super important to you. Are there other, uh, are, are there points during your career? Or, you know, it's, it, uh, you founded your own company, I think just, just 20 years ago. Um, do you see your, do you, you might not even think of it as a network, but is, has it that, that connection network of connections been super helpful to you as, as you started your business and where you are now? Oh yeah. I think it's yeah. very important. I mean, in the documentary film world is very small and there are a few centers, Boston, New York, San Francisco, Washington a little. The joke is in LA, it's not documentary film, it's reality TV, but there are documentaries coming out of LA as well. But really Boston and New York are, I think, the two biggest places. And so it's it's enormously important to know who to contact about various things. I mean, I'm still, I, I work mostly with PBS and that's a pretty small world in itself. And I've been doing it long enough now that I know a lot of people and uh, that helps, but it still doesn't guarantee anything. And it's a very, very uh, difficult world to navigate because there's not much money for these projects and it takes a long time to raise the money. So um yeah, network's incredibly important. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'd, I'd love to have you reflect back on, you know, starting your own company, starting Spy Pond Productions and um, knowing what it took to to build your business, grow your business to where you are today as, as an award-winning filmmaker. Are there specific characteristics, skills, personal 
traits about yourself that you think have been the most important? And, and the reason I ask is if you can sort of share with people who might aspire to, to do the kind of work you do one day, if there are just advice you have to share with folks about, here's what you need to do in order to be successful in this industry. Yes, uh, there are a few things. Patience, it's very important. Uh, it takes a long time usually to make these films. The most documentaries take far longer than anyone expects they will when they start out. And, and oddly, if you look at a lot of films, documentaries that have been very successful, often in part their success is due to the fact that they took so long. I mean, there are just many examples, Hoop Dreams, I mean, that's an old film now, but it wouldn't have been the same story at all if they'd gotten it done in the year or the year and a half that they thought it was going to take. It's because it followed people over so much longer. That gave its impact. Um, uh, gosh, there's another one, I'm forgetting the name, but about the, the Freedmans. Anyway, one where it started out being about a guy who dressed up as a clown, turned out as a, that it was a film about all sorts of weird sexual predator things. <laughs> I don't don't remember the ins and outs, but that was because it took so long to do. That part wouldn't have emerged. And that that's often true. So you got to stick with it. Uh, you've got to be open to collaboration, I think. I, I That's what's made me able to do it. Open to hearing people's ideas, working with people, uh, not getting defensive. If somebody tells you, as one of the editors I often work with says, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Which, but, you know, you just have to take it and say why. And um, you got to, I think, do that. At least I think the best films are team efforts. Uh, you have to have a visual sense and really think about how to make something that's abstract or inchoate somehow visual, somehow something to point a camera at that's not just a talking head. And that's the biggest challenge of documentaries. It, interviews are incredibly powerful if the speaker is right and the story is good, but you still have to do other things too. And that means you, you just kind of rack your brain and try to think of how can we possibly make a visual story out of this. So th those are the main things. And so I'm wondering if you could tell me, as you reflect over, you know, the last two decades of, of spy prawn productions, what are the projects that stand out to you most that you're most proud of or that you, you sort of want other people to see the most? Well, about, gosh, quite a while ago now, 15 years maybe, we, we did a film called Murder at Harvard. And that was the first dramatized documentary that I did. I'm, I've That's become kind of a... Uh, niche for me, the um, idea of taking a historical film and dramatizing parts of it. But the drama is always based on the written record, on the on the documentary record. And so that film we did with a, a, a historian named Simon Shama, who's gone on to become quite famous. He wasn't as famous uh, when we were working with him. And um, yeah, I was proud of that because it it's more than just a history documentary. It's a, it's a film, it's a, about a famous murder in 1849 at Harvard when a Harvard Medical School professor murdered a Harvard benefactor and then cut the body up and hid it in the medical school. Uh, but it's also about the nature of studying history, the nature of trying to figure out what actually happened in the past and whether or not 
we can ever ascertain the facts about something that happened long ago. And, and that's what Simon Shama does for it. So I really was very happy with the way the layers worked in that and made it much more than just a story about a fascinating, gruesome murder. It was that too, but had these other layers. And I had known from, from visiting your website that, that, uh, that was a project you had worked on, but I think I, that story is, recently in the news. Am, am I right? What, what <laughs> yeah. happened? Well, oddly, um, a, a guy who's an English professor on the West Coast named um, Paul Collins wrote a book about the case. But what was the funny coincidence is that Paul Collins is also in the most recent film I made, which is a uh, film about Edgar Allan Poe, because <laughs> Paul Collins had written a biography of Poe, as well as now this book about the the Parkman murder is what it's all right. Okay. Anyway, yeah, it was a funny yeah. coincidence. <laughs> um, so can you give us a, a, a tip on projects that you are having development now that you're excited about and, and when we might be able to see some of those things? Um, well, I can tell you about the projects. I don't know when you'll see them. You <laughs> never know. It's always hard to predict that. Yeah. But I'm doing a film about activists, about people who have recently become politically active people who never saw timing for that yeah exactly (laughs) i think it's um yeah the idea is to show that the climate now is encouraging people to jump into a a level of activism they've never done before and we're looking at people from all walks of life and all backgrounds a rich lawyer a um young 20 year old woman who's getting involved in gun control issues um people in north carolina who are working on voting rights issues so looking at at had people who have just made the sun change in their lives, look, following them as they try to achieve something over the next few months. And so I hope that'll be done by early spring, mid-spring. I'm working on a screenplay, trying to get that done. So that's a, a new, in a sense, a new departure. I've always tried to dabble in screenplays, but okay. now I have a little more time. So I'm really well, and that was actually my next question for you. Are you still writing? And I, I guess the answer to that is yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not writing any journalism. For a while, I was writing a regular column about mm-hmm. history and new media or history and new technology, digital technology for American Heritage magazine but unfortunately the magazine folded (laughs) so that came to an end i still occasionally write articles generally having to do with film and history and some kind of overlap but i haven't done that for a bit yeah so screenplays are what i'm trying to trying to do and it's it's funny in a way it brings me back to when i was first trying to get into documentaries it's a whole new way of thinking a whole new way of trying to tell a story and a lot a lot of rules to learn or rules to learn so you can break them and that sort of thing you know the the reason why we do this podcast is for folks like you to be able to share advice and and things that you've picked up along the way if you had to kind of wrap your advice for today's journalism students or you know filmmaking students wrap it up and put a bow on it what are what are the things that you'd want them to know that you've picked up in your you know, decades of experience? Well, I would say that as useful as school is, graduate school or undergraduate, in learning the basics of a field, filmmaking or journalism or both, nothing substitutes for actually going out and doing it and doing it at any level you can. So if you want to be a print journalist, just go to your local little town paper and try to write something for them 
you're not going to get to the Boston Globe or the New York Times first time out generally. So start realistically. And if you want to be a filmmaker, it is so much easier now. It, a good camera used to cost $40,000. Now it's a few hundred or you can use your iPhone. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And the editing software is practically free. So mm -hmm. uh, nothing's holding you back from making a film. And there's a demand for films more than ever. <laughs> so if you make it, there are so many different ways to get it out there. So I, I just encourage people to go and do it and don't think that you need to get an entry level job necessarily and work your way up from that. I mean, you, you often have to, to earn a living, but if you can do this other stuff on the side, actually do it and don't wait for someone to come along and, give you the chance to do it. You have to make your own chances. Well, Eric, this was a pleasure for me. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, you had mentioned earlier, if, if people are interested in learning more about your work or hopefully even connecting with you, what's, what's a good way for them to do that? Uh, the best way is to go to my website, spypondproductions.com and use the contact link there. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to people and send them links or whatever. Awesome. Thanks again, Eric. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks again to Eric Stangy for joining me on the podcast. What he shared on the importance of patience and a willingness to collaborate are lessons that I think we can all learn a great deal from. To connect with Eric or learn more about his company, visit spypondproductions.com. Thanks again for listening to the Proud to Be You podcast. If you like what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Proud to Be You wherever you download your episodes. I'm Jeff Murphy, and no matter where your path takes you, be proud to be you. The Proud to Be You podcast is produced by Boston University Alumni Relations. Our theme is from Jump and APM Music. To learn more about Proud to Be You, visit bu.edu slash alumni slash podcast.